I'm feeling way more conversational with this service than I was the first service. And maybe it's because I like you guys. I'm just being facetious. I like them too, just not as much. Okay, this is, this is what you're going to need this morning. You're going to need a Bible and you're going to need your notes. You're going to need a Bible and your notes. What we've been looking at is we've been looking at the person of Jesus. And obviously, I purposely did, just did not act like Jesus. Um, actually, it wasn't on purpose. I just caught myself and realized you, weren't just, you were just not acting like Jesus. So I'm giving you a great example of how not to be. And so we're going to, the notes are going to be very important this morning, as is the scriptures. And, and I'm going to open in prayer before we go. Father, we thank you for the morning and thank you that you, Lord God, you came and loved us in a way that is remarkable. And in in loving us this remarkable way, you've now given us the privilege, having been loved, to go love others in a remarkable way. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it's just hard. Um, So remind us today how loved we are, how it is you've loved us, where it, uh, where it was when you met us, where we were, and then what, you've, what you're bringing us toward. And may we join you in that movement, one step at a time. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So you're gonna need your notes. What we've been talking about is, what is how did Jesus treat people? We've been kind of working through the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke in particular, looking at the person of Jesus and how he treated people. Now, if you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. In the, there's, if you don't have one, there's some of the pew backs in front of you. You're going to need the notes. I'm going to start with the notes. So if you'll follow me in the notes. The front page is the page that says being like Jesus. You ready? So being like Jesus. Jesus did not describe himself explicitly very often. In other words, Jesus very seldom spoke of himself in, as to describe himself. Many people described him, oftentimes even being considered the son of God isn't anything he said about himself. He allowed others to say it, and because he didn't refute it, was saying to them, you are correct. But there are a few things he did call himself, and that's what I want to concentrate on today. And there's a reason for this. Because if Jesus dared call himself a certain thing, then we should pay attention And the the notes will help us do that. So here we go. Being like Jesus, Jesus did not describe himself explicitly very often, but one of the few times he did, he used two very unauthoritative words. And if you look at the notes from me, the parenthetical statement next, it says, not so typical for a conquering hero, which the Jews thought he was coming to be, neither what the world would expect from a leader, especially somebody who was supposed to lead a movement, especially in the context of our day today. The two words he used to describe himself were these, humble and gentle. He described himself as humble and gentle. So we go to the next sentence. It says, these would, be, these would not be the words one would expect from the Messiah as the, as the Jews understood him, bless you, as a king who is expected to come and conquer the world to establish a new kingdom. But these are the very words Jesus chose for himself. It, now, Here's the next bit that we need to grasp. If it is God the Father's concerted purpose to conform us into the likeness of his Son. In other words, if God's intention is that as he wins us to himself, he would give us his spirit, reveal to us Jesus through his word and his character, and his job, his purpose, the reason God is doing what he's doing is to make us look more and more like Jesus. 
If it is God's concerted purpose to conform us into the likeness of his son, Jesus, then these two words must not only be a part of our vocabulary, but the very aim of the building of our own character. In other words, if this is how Jesus would describe his character and God's, God's purpose in our life is to conform us into Jesus, we can't just talk about being humble and gentle. We can't just talk about humility and gentleness. We have to. We need to see these as absolute um, building blocks in the forming of our own character. These are two of our aims. Am I humble? Am I gentle? As I watch Jesus be humble and gentle, do I see that in me? Do I, pro do I promote that in me? Do I provoke that in me? Do I cultivate that in me? Do I recognize when I'm not and confess it and repent of it and move in the direction of it? Because that's his call. So we go back to that sentence for a moment. If it is God the Father's concerted purpose to conform us into the likeness of his Son, then these two words must not only be a part of our vocabulary, but the very aim of the building of our own character. And to be sure, this is not only the Father's aim. So in Romans, he says that he's working all things out for the good of those who, have been, who love him and have been called according to his purpose, that they would be conformed into the likeness of the Son. It's not only God's aim. Look at this next, sentence, this next part of the sentence. It's the Spirit's aim. The spirit in us is aiming us toward these attributes. So this is what I'd like to do real quick. I'd like you to turn to the book of Galatians, if you would. We're only gonna look at a couple of verses, but I want us to see, I want us to see where the Holy Spirit is committed to joining, in the, joining the Father to conform us into the likeness of the Son, and that the Son describes himself as being humble and gentle. So we're in Galatians 5. We're going to look at verse 22. You ready? Galatians 5, 22. Look what it says. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Oh, little guy, little girl, little guy, little girl, little girl. Little guy. Little one. We'll just call it a little one. Don't you love babies? Yes. Man, I love babies. What a joy that we had that baby with us. Thank you. All right, so here we go. I, where was I? 22? Okay. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, the first thing I want us to understand is all this is girded by humility. It takes humility to submit to the, to the Spirit, to even admit that we need the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's movement in us. We're gonna look at this in a minute. But it also takes humility to allow these things to be born in us because this is how we look, and look, see, and treat others. Every fruit of the Spirit you see, it can only be exhibited in the context of relationship. It's the only way it can happen. Relationship with God and relationship with one another. And so when I'm committed to a relationship with someone, one of the commitments I have to make is to see them from a humble, from a humble point of view as to respect them, honor them, and treat them. Allow the Holy Spirit to empower me to treat them as they deserve. So humility undergirds all of this. But then we see the attributes of the Spirit. And what is one of the, one of, one of the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit? It's gentleness. 
So Jesus calls himself humble and gentle. The Father is committed to conforming us into the likeness of Jesus. Two of those attributes would be gentle and humble. And then the Spirit's intention is to work with us in humility and to develop gentleness. It's to create and work through us and bear fruit in us of the likeness of Jesus. So we go back to the notes for a moment. So the Spirit... It's not just the Father's aim, but it's also the Spirit's aim, and therefore, it should be our aim as well. Here's another thought. Isn't it interesting that God would choose each or any of us to represent him when you consider how average we all are? I'm going to stop here for a minute. Average. What is it to be average? Now, some of us could say, well, I was a great student, and so I was above average. I was a great athlete, so I was above average. I was a great artist, so I was above average. I'm a great teacher, I'm above average. But how many of us who are great teachers are also great artists, who are also great musicians and great orators and great writers and there's always something that's less than average in each one of us, isn't there? So what does that do? It balances those things that are above average to make me what? Average. Now we might think, well that stinks. I wanna be more than average. Me too. But what does more than average mean? See, if we don't recognize that I have great strengths that have been given to me by God, the purpose of those strengths is to actually edify you, as yours are to edify me. And what's really wonderful about that is our strengths are all the same. If our strengths were all the same, we'd look exactly the same, we'd do the same thing. There wouldn't be any room left for anybody else to do anything, especially if it's the same thing. So this is what God did. He coupled all my great strengths with great limitations. Whee! The world likes to call them strengths and weaknesses. I disagree. I don't think it's a weakness. I think it's a limitation. And what's the purpose of a limitation? It's to be an invitation for you to bring your strength into my limitation. In other words, I realize, humbly, I can't do everything. I might be above average in one or two things, but I need help in everything else that I do. And that makes me average. Now again, we might think, well, that seems like an insult. Is it? Or is it how God made sure each one of us remains humble, remains available, remains teachable, remains teamable, that we would function together? That we would be patient with someone else's limitations because we ourselves have limitations. They would be humble about our strengths because everybody has a strength. Now, I could go to um, The Incredibles. Anybody ever watched the movie The Incredibles? Frankly, I think it's one of the greatest movies of all time. It's one of my favorites in The Little Bad Kid. Who is the bad kid's name? Anybody? The little stinker who becomes the big stinker. What's his name? What is it? Incrediboy! Incrediboy! And then he turns himself into like Spirion or something later because he doesn't like uh, Incrediboy. What does he say? No, it's actually not. It's the little guy. The runaround guy. Flash! Dash! Dash! As you know, I... Okay, now, let's take a moment. (laughs) I've watched this movie 38 times. I'm also ADHD. Which means every time I watch that movie, it's just I've never watched it before. Details are past me. What I do know about Dash, though, the little boy, uh, that would be Mr. Incredibles and Stretch Armstrong. What's her name? 
Elastigirl, their kid was Dash, and Dash was like my son Ian, and much like my grandchildren. And they just, they just run all over. And there's a moment in time when Dash is told that he's not allowed to use his superpowers to run races with his friends because obviously he had superpowers. And so what they were telling him was he needed to be average. He couldn't be special. And he couldn't be special because everybody else in the room needed to feel special. And so his response was, well, if everybody's special, nobody's special. See, that's not kingdom economy. Kingdom economy says, I have given you each a strength and unlimited limitations because you're each special. And you're all special in the manner in which I've designed you, made you, and fit you together. But it takes limitations to be an invitation for those things, those few things about us that are above average. So being average is not an insult. In fact, I think being average is to be just like Jesus. (laughs) Yes! Right? He's got it. Oh, poor little monkey. All right, so we get to practice the fruit of the Spirit for that dad, right? Patience, kindness, and we love, and joy that we have a child with us. And don't, ah, we love him. Okay, so here we go. Let's take a look at this now. So isn't it interesting that God would choose us each or any of us to represent him when you consider just how average we all are? But we're going to find that we're no different than Jesus. Turn to Isaiah 53 with me, if you would. Turn to Isaiah 53. This is a passage we've looked at in other contexts, but it bears looking at in this particular context. First of all, we very seldom spend time on the very humanity of Jesus, when in fact it's the humanity of Jesus that enables us to relate to Jesus. Very difficult to relate to the risen Jesus, glorious and majestic. In fact, John, his best friend at the beginning of the book of Revelation, when he runs into Jesus, what's he do? He falls down as dead. He can't even stand in his presence. And this was Jesus' best friend. So Jesus presented himself in the flesh that he would understand us and we would understand him. Hebrews calls him a high priest who can sympathize with us because he's been tempted just like we are. And therefore, we have this beautiful relationship of understanding between us and this Messiah. Well, in order for that to happen, he couldn't be a whole bunch above average or else none of us could relate to him. Hmm. Let's take a peek at this. Now, remember, this is going to be set up by actually a passage in Hebrews that says that Jesus is saying, you, a, a body you have prepared for me. Jesus is speaking to the Father and saying, I'm going to go and you've prepared a body for me to accomplish what you, to be able to accomplish in on the earth among the people what you've called me to accomplish. So Isaiah 53, here we go. It says, who has believed our message? And to whom has the, hour, uh, the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, I love the way he asks this question. Because I think to some degree what he's saying is, listen, what you're going to see now about this king, this Messiah, you need God's help for you to truly grasp, understand, and receive. Because it's not obvious. Anyone know who King Saul was in the Old Testament? He was the first king of Israel. You know what his stature was? He was almost a head taller than everybody else in the room. He was handsome and he was smart. He was regal and majestic. That's who Israel chose to be their king. How did Saul's reign end? 
essentially committing suicide while he was losing a war with his boy. After unrighteousness had completely disintegrated his reign and his kingdom. And David was being raised up to replace him. That's the world's image of a leader. Tall, beautiful, well-spoken, stature, just like me. Yeah, you keep laughing. So who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, this one to be revealed, grew up before him like a tender shoot, a child. And like a root out of dry ground. You know, my wife just got back from the stylist. Is that what y'all call them now? Stylist, right? And it was so wonderful. She got out of the car and she, the sun's behind her and the, it's gleaming and she looks beautiful. I said, sweetheart, you look so much like a dry root. <laughs> just coming out of the ground. She got back in the car and she left. <laughs> that is not what we would consider a compliment. <laughs> My wife, the dry root. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Listen, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Stop. This is the creator of the universe. This is the one who holds, according to Colossians, holds all things together by the power of his word. This is the one who, that all creation reflects his beauty, his creativity, his imagination, and his love. And yet this is how he comes. No majesty, no beauty to attract. In other words, you wouldn't have picked him out in a crowd. You would not have gone, oh, there he is. In fact, what does he say? For generations, the Jews are saying, there he is, and there he is, and there he is, and yet the one who came, not a Jew recognized him. That's why it, the prophecy starts out like this. To whom has your arm, or who, to whom have you revealed your arm? Because he has to be revealed by God because there's nothing majestic about him. The spirit does this. You see beyond the surface, beyond the beauty, beyond the majesty. There's something deeper, richer, more profound that might attract us to him. So here's Jesus, the dry root, nothing majestic, nothing that would cause you to see him in a crowd and call him out. Look what it says now. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a dry root out of the ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. We wouldn't even notice him in the crowd. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Probably not the life of the party. You wouldn't think of him as being the life of the party. He was like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we, look, we esteemed him not. We didn't see him as being great. He didn't walk into the room, everyone went, ooh, there he is. Yet. Why is this important? Go back to the notes with me, if you would. For some reason, my iPad just decided to update. Mm. 
Thanks, Mike. Is that your fault? Nice. All right, so here we go. Let me pull this up one more time. It's never done this during actual time of teaching. Okay, so here we go. Here we go. My Google spinner is spinning. It's loading. Here we go. All right, where was I? Do you remember? You remember? Bless you. Well, it's just been a sneeze fest this morning. That's like the fifth one. All right, so here, here's, another, here's, here's another thought. Isn't it interesting that God would choose each or any of us to represent him when you consider just how average we all are? And, and it was no different with Jesus. That this one who appeared like a dry root, having no majesty or anything in his appearance to attract us to him, was truly attractive because of what was going on on the inside. And that leaked out of his heart, his eyes, and through his lips. What do we need to see here? Let's keep going for a moment. Could it be that humble and gentle are two of the primary attributes that would make this unassuming, even unattractive, blue-collar man from Galilee attractive? Could that be? Isaiah says, as we just read, there, there was nothing in his appearance to attract us to him. But the gospel, Jesus himself seems to indicate that a gentle and humble spirit was his calling card. Certainly hearing of the healing and the miracles drew people to see and experience. But it was, it was gentle, his jump, gentle and humble manner that invited them in. The people came from everywhere to hear him. And they talked about the grace of his words. And the people even brought their children to him to bless and to pray for them and brought their sick to be touched by him. Certainly there's an element of his power that existed here, but there was something that showed that they were welcome to come. His eyes would say yes and his hands would be ready and his lips would be speaking grace and mercy and love and acceptance. Why is this important? Let me ask you, how many of you guys feel average? Anybody, anybody? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some people in the first service are like, dude, I'm way above average. I'm like, oh, I'm all about being way above average, mostly. Because I like what is about me that's about, about, about average. But you know what I've done as I've grown, and I alluded to this before, as I've gotten older and I realize older people can't do what younger people could do, and I'm certainly not as smart as I used to be because I used to think I knew everything. And I used to be able to tell you that I knew everything and tell you should, how you should do everything till I got what? A little older. Then what happened? My body started falling apart. I was telling somebody between services, when I played football in my 20s, you just bounce up like a kid. When you hit 30, something happens though. You want, you want to see what happens? Okay, let me show you what happens. I'm not going to deck Mike here and, and prove myself, but this is what happens. So, and I can't do what I used to do in the 20s because I'm not in my 20s anymore, therefore I can't do it. But there's something happens in your 30s when you start playing football. A kid hits you and they're in their 20s and you fall down like this. And you used to be able to bounce right up. Now you lay there for a second. And you roll over onto your hands and knees and you go, no, I'm all right. I don't need help. When your 40s hit, now you need help. 
and you lay there and all the 20-somethings who you used to play with who said you don't need, who you told didn't need help, they just stand and look at you. Now, now you go, no, help me, please. And you put your hand up. <laughs> then you hit your 50s. And in your 50s, you just don't get up. You just stay there. And it, all of a sudden, it becomes more fun to watch people play than it is to actually play. Oh, yeah. I can throw a football three times now. Three. <laughs> then my arm just falls off, just like this. I used to throw 200 a day, five days a week to my son. I can throw three underhand. <laughs> and that's no lie. I've learned to throw 30 yards just like this. Now I know why women play fast pitch softball underhand. Men are stupid. Okay, so... All that being said. One of the things you realize as you get older, and it takes a little bit of life and a little bit of hurt, a little bit of your body just not being able to do what it used to do, is you begin to recognize that your limitations are something you, were, you, know, you complained about when you were younger. You begin to embrace, embrace as you get a little older. And then when you get older, you begin, listen to me, please. You begin to rejoice in I'm so glad I can't do everything I used to do because frankly, I just don't have the energy to do it. And I'm really glad when somebody can walk next to me who does it so much better than I ever did it. Does that make sense? And all of a sudden, when you get older, you don't have to be the best in the room. You don't have to be the smartest in the room. You don't have to prove everybody wrong. You actually love when people are better than you and you can just stand and watch and marvel and enjoy. See, that's the progression of wisdom that accompanies broken bodies, right? And all of a sudden, my limitations are actually my great joy because now my children come and help. My grandchildren start to help. I actually accept my wife's advice and telling her, instead of telling her that I, I got this and then having her tell me, I tried to tell you. Sound familiar, men? Yeah. See, Jesus came with great limitations because he wanted us to join him in the process, to join him in the mission, to join him in the relationship. He wanted to relate to us and with us. He wanted to understand us and us understand him. He came average. And the beauty of that is, my being average is a blessing. Because that now gives Jesus permission to work through me instead of me trying to do it for him. Let's read on. So I want us to see a couple things. Jesus said, I am humble and gentle in heart. If you look down your notes in Matthew 11, he describes himself this way. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Anybody ever tired? Yeah, right? Weary, like soul weary. Not just tired, but soul weary. Like you just want to flop in a chair and never move again. Anybody ever been there? Jesus knew this, right? Jesus felt this. We're going to look at it in a minute if we have enough time. Um, Jesus felt this. And he related to it, and he spoke to it. And he said, listen, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I am, here is what he says, I am what? Gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. I don't have to compete with Jesus. He's humble and he's gentle. I find rest for my soul because I've been invited in and I can rest in that truth. I can just rest there. You'll find, I will give you, you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm not here to prove to you how great I am. I'm here to be great among you and to make you great with me. Rest in that. Stop trying so hard. In terms of gentility and expressing it, Proverbs put this way, a gentle answer, a gentle answer turns back wrath. It turns away anger. But a harsh word, a harsh response, stirs up anger. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. This is what I want to do now. What I want to do is I want to look at a story. What we've been doing is looking at how does Jesus treat people? How does he treat them? How does he act? How does this gentleness and this humility come to the fore? How is it that he would treat others? Because when we see how he treats others, we're actually seeing how he treats me. And when he treats me that way, and I receive this rest for my soul, now I have the empowerment, the ability, and the privilege to now love others the same way I've been loved, to treat others the same way I've been treated. And this is mercy and grace, but it's also conviction and challenge that I would turn this thing around, that I would join him in the love. So turn to Luke chapter eight, and we're gonna look at three different stories real quick, because this is what I want us to make, make I wanna make sure we understand this. this. I'm gonna go back to this limitation thing and this average thing. When we think about having to live like Jesus, okay, we're supposed to be humble and gentle and respectful. We're going, okay, yeah, that doesn't sound very easy because it takes a lot of energy to do that. Anybody sense the energy it takes to be gentle? I've always said, to, I used to say this to students all the time because they didn't seem to understand it. It takes a lot more power to be gentle than it does to be harsh. It takes a lot more strength to move something carefully and easy, than it does to just jerk it around and potentially break it. Jesus was gentle and it takes tremendous strength to do it. And we know how, mu- how much strength it takes to do it because the, mo- the moments we are called to be most gentle are the times we seem to have the least energy the least patience, the most conflict. Because it's in conflict that gentleness is what? Tested. Oh. It's when we're anxious that gentleness is what? Tested. I can be gentle when everything's well and I'm holding a baby and I'm just cooing with it, right? Gentleness is when that baby's been screaming for four hours from one to five. He's been nursed twice, changed diaper twice, walked around the house. I have to be to work in an hour and a half. Gentleness is not when the baby's happy. Gentleness is when the baby is screaming and has been all night. Gentleness is not when my wife loves me well and made just the right meal. Gentleness is for whatever reason we're having conflict and we're frustrated with each other and I have to respond to her. Gentleness never comes at the right time, the need for gentleness. It always seems to come at the worst moment. 
Now we think that and we go, well, all right, this makes sense then. Because Jesus obviously didn't have to deal with that stuff. He, didn't, he was never tired. He didn't have to deal with a crappy family. He wasn't even married. Yes, I use the word crappy because it's true, okay? So let's look at this for a minute. Go to Luke chapter 8. Because here's the thing. When gentleness is being tested, it's because it's crappy, not because it's good. So here we go. We're going to start, though. Where'd it go? Why am I lost? Oh, because I'm in Mark. Let's try Luke, Anthony. Okay. Listen, be gentle with yourself. It's, oh, I can't believe I just did that. What a moron. Okay, so here we are. We're in chapter eight. Now, we're going to look at a little synopsis that I'm going to add a little bit something to, because if you were to read this story in all three Gospels, you're going to see a little bit more flavor, but I wanted to keep us having to, from moving around too much. So let's look at verse 19 of chapter 8. Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. Stop. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Family reunion time. We're going to have dinner together. We're going to hang out. We're going to play a game. This is going to be great. Probably not. Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Now, I'm going to put a side note in here that you're going to find in the other Gospels when you search for it when you go home today. And it's this. So Jesus, the crowds kept gathering around Jesus, and Jesus' mother and brothers kept hearing about this, and they actually went to find him to, cut, to grab him and bring him home because they thought he was crazy. They thought he had, was losing his mind. So this is actually why Jesus' mother and brothers show up. So Jesus is in, the, he's got this crowd around him. They can't get near him. He, they think he's crazy. And what is his answer to this? Look what it says. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. Jesus didn't say, hey, hey hold on, I'll go, I'm going to go see him. Nope. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. There was conflict in Jesus' home. And it's because they didn't believe who he was. His point was, those people don't believe me. These people do. They think I'm crazy, but I'm not. You know what Jesus had? Family issues. His family thought he was nuts. His family was in constant conflict with him. His family mocked him later. Oh, why don't you go up to the temple and show everybody your power, Jesus? James, elbowing his brother Jude. Ha <laughs> ha, watch this. If we think that Jesus didn't have issues with his family, we're wrong. And yet he had to be gentle. But it gets better. Let's talk about fatigue for a minute. Anybody ever, ever get fatigued, like tired? Really tired. Anybody? 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 You know that tired that just... Like I said, it's not just in your face and in your eyes, but it's in your heart. You know, it's just, you're just exhausted. You just, you're, you just, just give me, ah. Introverts, raise your hand, please. No, you don't want to do that. I'll just make you more tired. So don't do that. Okay, so I'll pretend all the introverts just raised their hand. Extroverts are going, yeah. All right, so here's the deal. Listen, we get tired. And you're thinking, well, Jesus doesn't get tired. Let me tell you about tired. 
Yesterday my, was my grandson's sixth birthday party up in Cleveland. We're so excited to go, to take an entire Saturday and go up from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. for a birthday party. If you hear a little sarcasm, that's just my New Yorker coming out a little bit, okay? I love my grandson, but it's a long birthday party. Far, far away. I had to work myself up. Had to bring out that gentleness. Woo-hoo. Yay, birthday party. Ooh, lots of kids. <laughs> my favorite. So we're on our way to the birthday party about 9.30 in the morning. Now, I'm not advocating this, so I was driving on the interstate, and I drive the speed limit everywhere except for the interstate. I'll drive as fast as the police will let me drive on the interstate because they call that legal, apparently, because they don't pull me over, so it must be okay. My son's a state trooper. I've been talked to. I was driving fast on my way to the birthday party. And I'm talking to my wife. We've got the cake, Pikachu. It's in the back of the car. We've got extra chairs for the crowd because my wife's, or my sister, or my sister, my daughter, let's try going all the way down my relations. Okay, my daughter has a very small house with few furnishings. So we're gonna take these chairs with us and we're driving along and I'm talking. All of a sudden I feel, and my steering wheel, I'm thinking, what in the world? It went, just like that. And I'm, and I look in the rear view mirror and my wheel is spinning down the interstate the opposite direction of my car. Oh yeah. I think it said 85 right here. And the wheel's back there. Not a great combination. So I'm holding on to my car. I pull off to the side. I get out. I didn't know if the front of the car fell off. I didn't know if the whole wheel fell off. I just had new axles put on. I didn't know if one broke. I get there, and the rim still has, like, the beads on it. Now, if you don't know what that means, you have a rim, and then the inside and outside is where the tire attaches, and there was one inch of tire around each side. And the tire was way back, like a half a mile back. And I looked at it, and I just, I just looked at my wife, and I smiled. I said, no birthday party. <laughs> now, luckily, my son was right behind us, like a mile behind us, and he stopped and picked Sherry up and took the cake, and I sat with the car waiting for the tow truck. And I'm thinking, well, this could take all day. Hmm. <laughs> So I'm sitting in the car and I'm texting some people and making some calls, doing some connecting and different things. And I'm waiting for the tow truck driver to get there. But the, my wife called like three times and she's saying, you know, you are coming to the party, right? And I'm like, yes, sweetheart, I'll be at the party. So about an hour, hour and a half later, the tow truck finally shows up. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to be a long, long day. And then we had to take it to the garage and we're on the way to the garage. And I'm sitting in there, you know, the really loud trucks and the guy talks like this and I'm deaf in my left ear and it was a match made in heaven and so we're just driving along and it's already a 45 mile hour you know drive to the garage and he passed the road and I wasn't sure if I should say something and we kept going and we keep going and finally he goes shoot I'm going the wrong way and the worst part was it was 45 minutes the wrong way and so we had to not only go back but then find the place and I get there and the mechanic's not there. Now, it's not his fault necessarily. I'm being towed in. It's an emergency. But then I had to wait for him to be there. And I'm talking to him and all of a sudden, both the tow truck driver and the mechanic look at the tire like this. You know that look? And they looked at each other and said, we've never seen a tire do that before. 
and he didn't have a tire. And I'm thinking, no birthday party. But I told my wife I'd be there. I'm really tired. I'd just like to go home. Maybe I should nap. So I said to the mechanic, I said, well, what am I going to do? He says, I'll tell you what, you can have my van for the weekend. <sighs> so I took his van, I went home, and I let the dogs out. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if I let the dogs out, and I eat a little bit of lunch, and maybe the birthday party will be over. And my wife calls and says, now you are coming, right? Because the kids are expecting you. <sighs> yeah, I'll be right there. So I get in the van and I head up, and it's about an hour and 15 minutes, and I get there, and you know when tired just hits you like a truck, just whoa. And I had to roll all the windows down, open the, you know, open the, the sunroof, and I got my head hanging out the window at 80 miles an hour just trying to stay awake, getting to this birthday party. So I get to the birthday party. Most of the kids have left, Whew, thank goodness, right? But all the grandkids are still there and a lot of the relatives, and it was a zoo. Now, you see how much energy I have at 56? Imagine my six-year-old grandchildren and how much energy they must have. The house was a disaster and I'm just loving on the kids and I'm meeting everybody, but my eyes were just falling asleep. And I, I'm like, oh my goodness. So I spied through two doorways and I see an empty bed. Around the bed are all the toys. You couldn't even step into the room. But I walk into the room and I curled up on this bed. My two three-year-old grandchildren come in and they go, Poppy, that's Morgan's bed. I said, I know, but I'm going to go to sleep. Would you like some animals? And they piled every stuffed animal on top of me. <laughs> my wife has pictures of me holding a dog like this. I slept for 45 minutes. Kids are bouncing, jumping, jumping ropes, sliding down my arm off the bed. I didn't budge. That's tired. That's human. That's when it's hard to be gentle, when you're just so fatigued. And Jesus wouldn't know anything about that, would he? Verse 22. We're going to go quick because we're running out of time. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go, over to the, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Let's go boating. Now the interesting thing is Jesus is not a boater. He's a carpenter, right? But he had three bo at least three boaters who were friends of his who were part of his disciples. So what he did was he assumed they wanted to go boating too. You know, when you don't own a boat, it's always great to grab somebody else who does own a boat, right? So he goes, let's go boating. So I'm sure Peter, James, and Andrew got in the boat. So it says, now, one day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and they set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. I don't blame him. That's what I do. I nap. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great what? Danger. And in fact, another, another gospel talks about the fact that they were in fear for their lives. These are fishermen out on the water all times a day, every day of the week. They're afraid for their lives. This is a serious squall. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into the boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in danger. The disciples went and woke and what? And what? He went and what? Went and did what? Went and did what? Woke him up. The boat's being swamped. They're fearful for their lives. They're in great danger and he's snoozing. How tired was this man? How exhausted was Jesus that he slept in the back of the boat during a squall that caused fishermen to feel as though they were going to die? Do you think Jesus knew fatigue? Do you think he knew what it was to be tired? His body acted just like my body. You know why? Because it was average. It's average. You know what's so awesome about having an awesome, uh, just an average body? 
is we got to have the power of the Holy Spirit to do anything with God, for God, by God, and God through us. It's the beauty of the limitations built into our humanity so that me and God can partner. Now it says that Jesus got up and he rebuked the waves and he, he calmed the storm and they got to the other side. How exciting is it to want to go across the lake? There's the beach. We finally get there. We had our lives saved. This is going to be great. Verse 26. They sailed across the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. And when Jesus stepped ashore, finally, toes in the sand, he was met by a demon-possessed man. Nice. Did he at least bring an umbrella? No. Look what it says. I lost my place. Where was I? Okay, they sailed across to the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had, had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. Could you imagine the sight? Could you imagine the sound? Could you imagine the odor? Could you imagine the intrusion? Can you imagine the inconvenience? Can you imagine the fatigue? The disappointment? I just want to hang out with my boys on the beach. <sighs> Not again. On the inside. Remember, Jesus was tempted just like we are, but did not sin. I'm sure Jesus' heart sunk, and he had to practice gentleness. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house. He had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell on his feet. He fell at his feet. Shouting at the top of his voice, the demons had taken over. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he kept breaking the chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. In fact, in another passage, it says that he cut himself and he harmed himself. And he cried out. Jesus asked him, what's your name? The demon replied, Legion, because there are many demons in me. And they begged him repeatedly not to order him into the abyss. A large herd of crowds was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them, to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. He even honored the demon's request to go. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs. The herd rushed down on the steep bank in, in the lake and they drowned. And when those attending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. The people went out to see what had happened. They, were, they, were, they heard about the power and they came to see it. But look what happens next. When they came to Jesus, they found the man whom the demons had gone out of, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. Isn't this astounding? 
Jesus did not judge the man. He did not condemn the man. He did not hold the man off. He, he accepted the man. He, he, he took the man in and he healed the man. And in healing, the man brought him into himself, dressed him, and he sat at his feet. And Jesus' gentleness and humility and his respect and his dignity and his grace spoke to the heart of this man. Nothing majestic about him, nothing attractive about him other than what? The very nature of his being the very character of his person. Why is this so important? Because that demon-possessed man and all the monsters that were in him is us. And we are healed. We are sitting at his feet with a right mind. And look what happens next. Man, go ahead and get in place if you would. A large herd of pigs, oh, excuse me. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, this is verse 34, they ran off and reported this in the town of the countryside. The people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind. And they were what? They were afraid. How afraid were they? Those who had, who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people in that region asked Jesus to do what? Leave them. Because they were overcome with fear. So he respected them. He honored them. He was kind to them. And he what? He left. He didn't preach at them. He didn't argue with them. He didn't condemn them. He didn't, he didn't condemn them for, for not receiving him or hearing him. Or, um, no. He honored the, their request. He got in the boat and he went to leave. Why is this so important? Sometimes we forget that the raw power of Jesus is so overwhelming that anyone who does not understand the power of God is terrified of that. And so for Jesus to show up and just reveal power will always paralyze. What happens next is the grace of God. You ready? And this is where we should be. This is where our hope is. Look what happens next. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. Now imagine that. He wants to be one of his disciples. He wants to get in the boat. He wants to go with him. You would think, oh yeah, one more. But the, the, the more the merrier. This is fantastic. What does Jesus do? The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away. Jesus said, no, 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 you go. Why? Look what it says next. He says, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town what Jesus had done for him. Listen to me. We are the humble, average, clay, earthen clay, cracked vessels of the raw power of the Holy Spirit. And God has purposely demonstrated his power in us and through us so that when we walk into the world, it happens gently and graciously and carefully and considerately and respectfully. We get to carry that raw power in a bumper that man was sent back because they couldn't tolerate being in the presence of the glorious king, but they could hear the grace of a God and father who saved a man like them. That's the privilege we have 
to carry Jesus. That's the privilege we have to be filled with that power. That's the privilege we have to be in the lives of another. That's the privilege we have to develop the character traits of humility and gentleness and respect and dignity and honor when we walk into anyone else's life. Amen? It is communion. The beauty of the table is just what we just read. The Jesus, the glorious king, the one whose radiance was so amazing that his best friend fell as dead when he ran into him in heaven, speaking of John, who wrapped himself in our flesh that we might relate to him, we might understand him, and that he might be sympathetic to us. And the table is the invitation into that presence, his body, his blood, that covered that power, that made it possible for us to see the king, to know the king, and to be known by the king. We celebrate an open communion. If you have a relationship with God in Christ, we ask you to come forward. While we sing this song that we're gonna sing, I would ask that we just allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts. And then as you're ready, come forward, take the elements back to our seat, and we'll take them together. Let's stand and sing. There are two verses that I wanna redeem for us before we go any further. That if you go through the notes later, you'll see, and you'll see what we're doing with them. And the question we might ask ourselves is, how do we go about this? What, Jesus came and there was nothing attractive about him. And we've lost the meaning of words like humility and gentleness and modesty, virtues that according to Jesus actually are what make us attractive. And it's in 1 Peter 3, and I'm redeeming them. Not, listen, God's word never needs to be redeemed in and of itself because it is God's word and it's right and it's just, it's fair and it's true. But we do sometimes need to redeem how we've seen it or received it in the past. There's a little passage that says, wives, submit to yourself to your husbands and let your beauty be that of a quiet spirit, of a gentle and quiet spirit. I want to redeem that in this way. That's not just for women. See, Jesus came and he didn't adorn himself with a body that looked like an Adonis with robes of gold and crimson flowing. But he came as an average, blue-collar, calloused hand, dusty-footed man. So ladies, the scripture goes on to say, don't adorn yourself with braids and jewelry and makeup, but let your beauty be that of the inner beauty of the soul gentleness and humility grace and Peter didn't have any problem with braids or jewelry or makeup his point was don't let that be the essence of your beauty but there's another passage that needs to be redeemed and it goes on to say husbands be considerate of your wives and the command is to the husbands because wives are actually pretty good at being considerate and we as men are not and so he says be considerate of your wives Treat her gently and respectfully. Why is this so important? Because both are the evidence of Jesus' gentle and humble spirit in all of us. And how we get to unveil him to a dying world. That our beauty, all of ours, would be just like Jesus. Humble, gentle, respectful, gracious, kind, and considerate. See, at the table, he was considerate. He took into consideration my need, and he gave himself 
because of it. So he said, he took a piece of bread and he broke it and he gave it to his friends. He said, this is my body. I'm considering you right now. Broken for you. Whenever you eat it, remember me. And at the end of the meal, he took a cup and he said, this is a cup of a new covenant made in my blood as I honor you with my life for yours. Drink it and remember me. It says at the end of the meal, they sang a hymn. Let's go out singing.